Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Today, we are looking at Genesis 3, the fall of mankind. And if you got your Bibles out, now you can open them to that. Otherwise, Mrs. Todd's going to throw the words up on the screen as we go through the text in those first 15 verses. But we may look at this story today and be tempted to say that this story is just a fable or, or some sort of allegory because how ridiculous is it that a man and a woman lived without sin in a garden, and then a talking snake convinced them to eat forbidden fruit, thus bringing death into the world. Well, we may be tempted, but let us not fall into that temptation. For when we do that, we risk calling the whole Bible maybe a fable or an allegory, or worse, we start picking and choosing what parts of the Bible we think are real and what parts are not, depending on what suits us and when we need it to. For as crazy as this story is, there was a real serpent. Adam and Eve were real, and they sinned, and our race, mankind, is truly fallen. And we have to believe this. We have fallen into sin, and we are in need of a Savior. Which is why, as we look at this story today, I'd like to have some Old Testament takeaways. Now, we don't always spend some time, that much time in the Old Testament, but today, we're going to go very close to the very beginning. We're at chapter 3. It starts, obviously, at chapter 1. But where are my um, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse fans? Do I have them? I see that hand. Two of you. Awesome. Very nice. Well, Mickey Mouse and his clubhouse pals have this guy named Toodles. And Toodles, no one gave me an O Toodles call? Thank you. Thank you. You will go far in life. Now, Toodles always comes by. They call him out and he drops a little help. He gives them some sort of tool that they could never finish the adventure without him. Now, friends, I'm not going as far as trying to use the metaphor of Toodles as the Word of God, but I thought it fit just enough to say this is how God's Word is engaging and equipping us today as we look at our Genesis text and take some takeaways from the Old Testament. So here's verse 1, chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So Genesis 3 doesn't say that the serpent is Satan. But Ezekiel does in chapter 28, and there's also many other places in Scripture where Satan is described as a serpent, like Isaiah or Job or Revelation. So in case there was some confusion, friends, the serpent is Satan. In fact, in Ezekiel 28, we learn that Satan was an angel. Satan was a leader in heaven. And we learn from Isaiah that his fall had to do with his setting his will against God and Satan's desire to be equal or greater than God. And his effectiveness here in the text, and still today, comes down to that line of cunning and crafty. In fact, St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that in the beginning it was by his craftiness that Satan deceived Eve. Friends, it's been said we cannot outsmart Satan, but we can overcome him in Jesus. See, Satan brought his temptation against the woman Eve because he perceived she was more vulnerable to attack. Now, before you attack me or try to stab me, let's make it very clear, it was not because she was a woman, as if she was weaker or less intelligent or something idiotic like that. Based on my study, I think it's because she did not receive the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil directly from God, but she probably got it through Adam. And perhaps Satan knew by observation that Adam didn't do an effective job of communicating to Eve what the Lord told him to say. Satan tends to attack a chain at its weakest link. Now before you say, wait a minute, are you telling me that a woman needs to hear what a man has to tell her before she can know? Friends, no way. You've met my wife. You know the family that I come from. But in the text, you see 
that Satan attacks the word of God when he comes to Eve. He doesn't attack Eve. He attacks what she has been told. I'm pointing this out because this is our first Old Testament takeaway. Those of us who have been given the word of God must speak it truthfully, boldly, and fully. Those of us who have children cannot rely on others to tell them, but must own the calling that God has given us and speak the word to our children, give it its proper place of authority in their lives and in our own. All of us who have received and have come to trust in the word must share and must share the right way, fully, not holding anything back and certainly not acting like this life-giving word we have from God is something that can be mentioned once or just offhandedly or done in a way that isn't purposeful. Rather, as St. Peter tells us, we must be prepared in season and out, always ready to speak to the hope we have with all gentleness and respect. So the takeaway is to hold to the Word of God, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to know it and to share it because it was here that the foundation was laid that led to sin when Satan questions, has God indeed said? This first attack leveled against the word of God to make Eve confused, to doubt what God said. From the beginning, Satan has tried to undermine God's people by undermining God's word. And in turn, then seeing us neglect it. It is a powerful combination when Satan is working to undermine God's word and we are choosing to neglect it. A powerful combination that leads to doubt and fear. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. First mistake is probably carrying on the conversation with Satan. When we are tempted, we hear that little voice in our head, let us do what St. Jude teaches us in his letter and simply and strongly say the Lord rebuke you or as Patrick read for us from Matthew, away from me, Satan, and ended at that. Don't engage in the conversation. Eve's response, however, as you can see, is partially correct, isn't it? She knows not to eat it or she'll die, but it's what she doesn't seem to know that makes her more vulnerable to deception. She doesn't mention the name of the tree. And she adds something that God did not tell Adam earlier in chapter 2. She says you shouldn't touch it. Now, I'm not saying that wasn't a good idea to not touch the tree, but perhaps it's not too much of a stretch to think that when Adam was telling what was going on, he said, okay, and that tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat it. It's bad. You know what? In fact, don't even touch it because it's dangerous. And again, love, that's not my role. I mean, uh, my rule. Look how beautiful you are. I love you. That's God. So don't do it. Anyway, here's a really big cat. I'm thinking about calling it a lion. What do you think? Now, some commentaries go even further. They like to speculate and add this detail to the text. They like to suggest that when Eve mistakenly said, we must not touch it, Satan pushed her up against the tree, and when she touched it and did not die, it allowed her to doubt even more. But again, that's just speculation. The bottom line is this. The tree was placed there, told not to eat because it reminded them that they are not God that they were responsible to God, not to themselves, and certainly not to Satan. And yet in this conversation between Eve and the snake, and more than likely Adam hiding right behind her, there is not an urgent and definitive response of the Lord rebuke you. There is only more words and lies spoken. Verse 4 says, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. 
For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The groundwork has been laid. Satan drew Eve into a discussion, brought about doubt, exposed her incomplete understanding of God's word, and then moves in for the main swing. Direct contradiction of God's word. Direct contradiction of what God said. Notice what he does there. That's the other Old Testament takeaway. He tries to get Eve and us to completely ignore the consequences of sin. Satan tries to get Eve and us to completely ignore the consequences of sin. Have you ever experienced that temptation? No one will ever know. You're not hurting anybody. What's the big deal? You've done this before. And a hundred other lies we tell ourselves. But Satan doesn't stop with convincing us there's no consequences. He tries to get us also to doubt the goodness of God. For if God would lie to Eve, how could he be good? Tries to get us to doubt the badness of sin. If the fruit is good, why does God not want you to have it? Make sin something good that a bad God doesn't want us to have. And that's the main lie, isn't it? Sin is not bad, and God is not good. Friends, that's such a powerful lie that takes on so many different forms in our lives. If God lets you experience pain, how can he be good? If God could heal you, why doesn't he want you to be whole? If God gave that to them, why doesn't he love you too and give you that as well? Satan lies are powerful and tempting because there's these little tiny slivers of truth in them. For Adam and Eve, it was the truth that their eyes would be opened, and they were. But they weren't like God. No, they saw and became aware of their own sin and frailty and open rebellion against God. And you can hear that, right? You can hear that, that whole situation and see it. Put yourself right there. A promise that you will be like God. So many religions. Ways of thinking, ways of life. Tell us if you do this work and promise this way to become God-like. You can achieve and have what you always have wanted. All you have to do is and you will be like. You can ascend and be like the Most High. All you have to do is and you will be like. That lie and false promise is everywhere. And it stands in direct contradiction to the truth. And friends, the truth is much harder to hear, but it is so much more freeing to have. For the truth is, you have sinned. You are not God. And you are in need of a Savior. The truth is, you cannot buy your way out of your mess, and you cannot work your way out of this fallen state that we are in. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Leave that text up there for just a moment, please, and compare it to what 1 John 2.16 says. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. Take a look at that and compare it to the temptation that Jesus went through. Pleasing food to the eye, a promise that you won't die no matter what. All the nations could be yours along with their splendor. In her mind, Eve thought she was doing something good for herself. 
She was tempted. She was deceived. But she did not have to take it. The taking was all her doing. She could have run, but she did not. Not only did Eve sin, but also became the agent of temptation for Adam, which is another Old Testament takeaway. Your sin does not only affect you, no matter what you think. When Adam ate, though, he wasn't deceived. Adam's eyes were always wide open, open in rebellion against God. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. And I don't want to hear about how he did it out of love for Eve. Not when we see what's going to happen when God calls him out. Which is why Adam bears the responsibility for the fall of the human race and the introduction of death into the created order. 7 says, The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Naked literally, Chris Drager, and figuratively. Naked and exposed with their shame for all to see. The way they saw themselves had changed. The way they saw created order had changed. So they sell fig leaves for covering. Points for Gryffindor and their creativity, but not really smart. Anybody ever tried to wear a fig leaf before? Me neither, but I read up on fig leaves. Apparently they're prickly and itchy and not very soft. Just goes to show you how every attempt we make to cover our own nakedness before God is just plain foolishness. Friends, we need to let Jesus cover us and put on Jesus as our covering garment. It's why we confess to God. We don't try to cover it up or make some excuse. We come out and we admit our brokenness and our failures to the one who was tempted and yet was without sin, to the one who invites us to come forward to his throne of mercy in all confidence. And it's hard to do, but it is the only thing that brings hope and peace. For everything else, you never know where you stand or if you've done enough covering, or if you did it the right way. But the promise of the one who has died and rose for you promised you something on the cross, and it's why he said it is finished. Because he has done it, has covered you, taken it away fully and completely. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden in the cool of day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? They hear the Lord coming because he wants to be with them. He had fellowship with Adam and Eve in a natural, close, intimate way. I love how this is just casually dropped on us, right? God walked in the garden with them. And I don't put too much talk on this, but look at the time of day. No scorching sun, no scary night. This is the perfect time of day for a walk. God is so cool. And it is so sad and so absurd that they hide because they clearly know their fancy leaves ain't covering it. They're embarrassed, they're ashamed, they're afraid. And yet God calls out, not angrily, even though he knew, but he calls out because he knows that they're lost. He calls out because he's concerned. He's seeking them. He wants them to confess. That's the takeaway. Because it's the same for us. Each one of us sins. Each one of us tries to hide. Our God, our slow to anger and abounding in love God, our merciful God, seeks us and is concerned for us, desires to walk with us, comes to us patiently, comes to us in care, comes to us and calls us by name, bringing truth and showing us that we need Him. And more than that, in Jesus, showing that He will save us. Because sin wrecks us. 
but God heals and saves. And if you're getting to the part of this text where the more time we spend, the more time you want to confess again, even though we did it at the beginning of the service, friend, be free of that sin that is so desperately clinging to you. Silently pray, give it to the Lord, for He is near and close to you and quick to forgive. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God said, who told you you are naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. See, sin makes us afraid of God's presence, afraid of his voice. Makes us do stupid things like not coming clean right away and just repenting, but instead trying to cover it up, trying to excuse it. In the case of Adam trying to blame shift to his wife and then blame shift up to God himself. Adam stands guilty of rebellion against God, guilty of unkindness to his wife, and guilty of blasphemy and blaming God. Sad and all too unfortunately relatable. But who would ever want to bear that guilt? And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve doesn't try to blame shift. She just tells the truth. She was deceived and she did eat. But to exchange the truth of God for a lie is a sin just as much as what Adam did. Sad, but unfortunately all too relatable. Who would want to bear that guilt, bear that mistake? 14 says, The Lord God said to the servant, Because you've done this, curse to you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. God doesn't question Satan like he did Adam and Eve. Nothing to teach Satan. He stands condemned already. And I don't know what a snake looked like before if it had to crawl on its belly and eat death. It must have something really beautiful. Maybe it had wings or legs. That's for, for you to do later. But not anymore. And then verse 15. The Proto-Evangelium, the very first gospel. As Martin Luther said, this text embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. The first ever gospel proclamation is given by God himself for mankind and Satan to hear. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God's plan wasn't defeated when Adam and Eve sinned because God's plan was to bring forth something greater than just innocent man in a garden. God wanted more than that. He wanted the redeemed man in Jesus Christ. God reverses everything. The text is going to go on to describe pain in childbirth and sorrow, but through the virgin birth of Mary comes the one who will wipe away every tear of sorrow and conquer pain and loss for all time. Man will work the ground and sisals and thorns will appear, but one will come who will take on the work of redeeming man and will wear thorns for a crown. And that phrase, take and eat, that brought death into this world will now be spoken to you to bring you forgiveness and give you life for all eternity. Who would want to take all that guilt and have to deal with those mistakes? Your Jesus Christ. That's who. Took them away and did away with them. Whatever guilt, pain, or sin you have, friends, give it to Jesus. Because with Jesus, God's reversal continues as he calls and gathers broken sinners to be forgiven. and To be sent out to proclaim hope and peace and victory in his son. That's the final takeaway. 
is that with the gospel and the spirit of God that permeates in your heart, the work of continuing to be remade into the image of Christ never stops until he returns. So yeah, to confess is vital for our spiritual health, but the forgiveness you have received is far more important for who you are as a forgiven and loved child of God, all on account of Jesus Christ. No lie, no wall, no anything will ever stand in him coming for you with all of his love. And the band's ready to jam, and I'm kind of ready to stand up and sing. I called for it earlier, and they weren't ready, but I know they are now. So let's sing this next song, knowing and being fully confident that we stand as forgiven children of God and have a God who loves us and has redeemed us in his son. Amen? Amen.